0: All right, church, if you could, please let us open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 9. We're going to be jumping right back into our series here on the book of Genesis. As you're turning there, I want to share with you something from my childhood. Maybe some of you can relate to, maybe things have changed, maybe they haven't. When I was in school, the ultimate way, if you really wanted to get under someone's skin, and why this is the case, you know, there's different different explanations, I guess, but the ultimate way to get under someone's skin was to talk about their mama, okay? Someone talked about your mama, it was the end of the world, and I'm not talking about mom or mother, like it was always that, I don't know why, mama, your mama, and then it was like, what'd you say about my mama? (laughs) You, You don't do that. You know, you could talk about someone, you could talk about that person to their face. You could talk about their dad. For some reason, dads aren't important, I guess. But you talk about their mama, and suddenly it's like, there's about to be a fight in the school. And a lot of times there was. There was a fight that broke out because someone said something about someone's mama. Just a big thing. It's interesting, isn't it, that that would fire us up. Mothers are very, very precious to us. Why is it that we get so defensive on their behalf when they're not present, when these things are just ridiculous? Why is it that we get so worked up? It's because these ladies have carried us and brought us into the world. Through them, God has given us life. They've preserved our lives. They've fed us. They've enhanced our lives. When we're hurt, they're there to comfort us. They're very valuable to us. Our mothers, we know instinctively, are valuable and worthy of dignity. Therefore, we can't tolerate someone insulting our mothers, much less hurting them or planning something destructive towards them. We place a value upon them greater than the value we place on others. And while it's natural for us to feel this way about our mothers, what I want to propose to you this morning is that this is how it should be with all people, and I'll explain why. Here's the main idea this morning. Every human life is valuable and ought to be treated accordingly. Every human life is valuable and ought to be treated accordingly, and we'll see why in our text this morning. Because we've been out of Genesis for several weeks now, through the holiday season, I want to give you a brief recap of what we've seen. So we've seen creation, and we've seen the devastating effects of sin upon it. Sin has warped God's good creation, so that now instead of filling the earth with God's image, we are filling the earth with the image of sin. We are warping and distorting what God says. And with that sin comes pain and suffering. The only hope that man has is faith in God, who's working out a plan that he established in Genesis 3.15. There would be a seed, an offspring from the woman, that would crush the serpent's head. Today, we pick up where we left off. After the global flood, the flood's over, God has wiped out all evil from the face of the earth, or so it would seem. Many lives have been lost, but eight lives have been preserved. Yet in the midst of this, God wants us to know that life is valuable. Please stand together as I read from Genesis chapter 9. I'll read verses 1 through 7 for us this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need you to do a work in our hearts this morning as we come to your holy word that you have inspired. We praise you and thank you that it is without error, that it is perfect and complete for us, providing everything we need to be fully equipped and effective as Christians. This morning, would you expose our hearts to us through your word that we might be changed further into the image of Jesus Christ, the Son. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So our text this morning, as we get started, has some major allusions to God's creation at the beginning of the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. I'm going to go back, as you've got your Bibles open to chapter 9, I'm going to go back and read some verses from chapter 1, and as I read these, I'm going to go back and read the verses in chapter 9, and I want you to notice some of these similarities here. Genesis 1, 28 Says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is to Adam and Eve. Now look at verse 1 here. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 1.28, continuing with Adam and Eve. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So now, Genesis chapter 9 to Noah, starting in verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Genesis 1.29 with Adam and Eve. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Now, picking back up in Genesis 9, verse 2, "...into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything." So far, it is remarkably similar. God is blessing and giving this mandate, go out and fill the earth. He's describing the creatures that are swarming in the water or on the land, that are flying, that are creeping... And then he describes how they are going to be sustained, but we get to verse 3, and suddenly there's a little deviation here. Before we get to that, I want you to see that in Genesis 9, Moses, who is the author of Genesis, wants us to see a new sort of creation here. It's like creation has this reset button that's been pushed. Click, and everything resets the earth has been eliminated of all life except for what was preserved on the ark God has eliminated all wicked men and he has left a remainder here to start fresh it's almost like God is saying okay, the fall messed everything up now that I've gotten rid of all these wicked people now go fill the earth with my image and my glory knowing full well that that is not going to happen God knows this isn't going to work He wants us to see it for ourselves. Have you ever had the thought, you know, if all the crazy people would just leave our country and we could have a fresh start, things would fix themselves and everything would be okay. You ever thought something like that? Sometimes I have. If if we could just get rid of the crazy people, everything would be okay. Guess what? That's wrong. (laughs) We know it's wrong. Generations down the road, we're going to run into the exact same problem again. That's why since the foundation of the earth, every major nation that has risen up, guess what happens? It destroys itself. It crumbles in on itself. No matter how many fresh starts you get, it always breaks down. And God wants us to see that here. God wants us to see that the sin problem here is not isolated to those people. The sin problem is in our kind of people. It's in us. Even those of us that pride ourselves with how regularly we're in the Word and how obedient we are to the Bible and how much we can't believe that other people don't raise their children right and that they act certain ways. We take this pride in ourselves, but guess what? The sin problem's in you too. It's in all of us. It's not in those people. It was in Noah. It was in those eight individuals. Even in the most favorable circumstances, like, say, a global flood wiping out all wicked people from the face of the earth, because of sin, we simply cannot fill the earth with God's image on our own. And God wants us to know this. Fresh start, let's see what happens. By the end of chapter 9, we're going to see it doesn't work. (laughs) It does not work. So it's very similar It's kind of like a fresh start. But then in verse 3, I mentioned we had this deviation. Now, instead of only eating plants for food, now, praise God, we can have bacon. And Kristen West said, amen. (laughs) Kristen loves bacon, so do I. Meat is on the menu. I want to point something out, though. Isn't it interesting that eating meat wasn't a part of God's original Provision. When God looked at everything and said, perfect, this is very good, bacon was not in that. And I've scratched my head about that. Why not? What we have here is a concession. Man was supposed to live off of plants. Now, Man is allowed to eat meat, but there's a right and a wrong way to do so. Look at verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Here's the concession. Now, in order for us to eat, we have to take the life of something. When we hunt and we harvest an animal, in order for us to eat and live... We have to kill something. It loses its life so that my life can be sustained. That's the concession. Obviously, there was a reason for us to need to eat meat after the flood or else God wouldn't have done that. It wasn't a part of the original design. It is post-sin and post-flood. So there's been many theories offered. From changes in the earth's atmosphere, certain types of plants can't grow effectively, or they've lost their nutrients in a way that animals provide it. Or the extinction of certain types of plants that we really needed in order to live well, but now we don't have them anymore. Or the simple lack of sufficient vegetation after the flood, and they needed to be able to eat meat. Whatever the reason is, God allows us to take the life of an animal in order to to eat and be sustained God wants us to see that the price that is being paid to, for us to be sustained is life we are having to take life in order to preserve our life so here's point number one this morning life is valuable in God's sight life is valuable in God's sight all life is It's not just the animal life. Look at what happens next. Verse 5. God speaks about human life in verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Life is so valuable in God's sight that life must be given for life. If an animal takes a human life, or if a man takes a human life, that being shall be killed. That life shall be taken because of the life that was taken. God will require it. And as if that wasn't clear enough, God explicitly says, whoever kills a man shall be killed by men. What we have here is a God-mandated form of the death penalty. As much as we try to deny it, there are some crimes that are so heinous that they simply require the taking of life. And here God gives us a clear example of such a crime the taking of life. Life is valuable. Now before we go crazy here with this verse and start drawing all these lines and saying where it falls and how this should flesh itself out in a society, let me remind you that whenever Cain killed Abel, God did not immediately take his life from him, did he? He exiled Cain. The point of this passage isn't to describe an exact judicial process or a process of justice in how we carry out certain types of punishment. The point is God is showing that life is valuable. He's showing how it's valuable. He's showing why it's valuable, and he's showing that that should affect the way that we treat other people made in the image of God. Why is it that they're valuable? Look at verse 6. By man shall his blood be shed for or because God made man in his own image. So here's our second point this morning. Human life is valuable because we are made in God's image. So all life is valuable in God's sight, And in particular, human life is valuable because we are made in God's image. The value of life goes far beyond simply taking life. When someone is abused, the image of God is abused. When someone is insulted, the image of God is insulted. When someone is neglected, the image of God is being neglected. This has profound implications for the abortion debate. Babies who are made in the image of God are being killed. This has profound implications for our system of law and order. The taking of life must be treated with absolute and utmost seriousness. This has profound implications for the way that we think about or talk about people. You are not more worthy than they are. They are a valuable life. It is always a tragedy when life is taken, whether it's unjust or just. It is always a tragedy. We ought not to speak about life that just deserves to die because in that moment, we're actually condemning ourselves. We all deserve to die. Do we not? You might be in this room thinking, well, I don't deserve to die. Every single soul in this room has committed divine treason against God. We all deserve to die. There is no life in here that is more valuable than another. It doesn't matter what you've done. Human life is valuable because we are all made in the image of God. Even when justice is executed, and that is necessary, and we see that here in the Bible, it is still a tragedy. In the context of God's command to fill the earth with his image, the taking of life willfully is an intentional act of rebellion against God's creation mandate. He says fill the earth, but we are taking life instead. So continuing this theme of the value of life, I want you to listen to what happens next. We see here in verse 7, the creation mandate reiterated again. Then in verse 8, I'm going to read 8 through 17. Follow along with me. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It's significant that we have this passage immediately following the flood. Many people have this idea of God that he's this vindictive, genocidal, mass-murdering, prideful, arrogant God who is obsessed with killing everybody who doesn't worship him. The God we serve is so, so different than many people think. Yes, God is very holy. Yes, he is very just. Yes, he punishes evil. But what we see here is a merciful God. What this passage reminds us is that God desires mercy rather than judgment. God is promising to preserve life for all future generations, not to respond in judgment. What this passage, juxtaposed with the flood narrative, teaches us is that judgment does not rid us of sin. Do you get that? Judgment doesn't fix the problem. How do we know that? We saw judgment. The global flood. We have these eight people. We have this man who is righteous in God's sight because of his faith. So judgment cleansed the world, and now guess what we have after the flood? We still have sin. Judgment doesn't fix the problem. So now, after that act of judgment, now that we're able to see this, God is able to establish this covenant that is like a foundation for a new covenant in the New Testament through Jesus. And in this covenant, God is showing, I desire to show mercy. Judgment doesn't work. I desire to show mercy in my plan to eliminate sin. It's mercy that rids us of our sin. Number three, God desires to give life through mercy. Now, please don't misunderstand. God is both a God of mercy and judgment. But his desire to show mercy, it is to show mercy. And only after showing mercy to some, then judgment to those who have rebelled. So God offers mercy. There is a group of people that respond to mercy. And then the rest experience judgment. So God makes a covenant. This is called the Noahic Covenant. God makes a pact that he will not flood the earth with water again to kill all life. Again, reiterating the fact that judgment is not his priority. And the rainbow is the sign of the covenant that God made with everything that that has life. Many in our culture have taken the sign of the rainbow and applied it in a terrible way. We all know what this means. They celebrate things that ought not to be celebrated. But when we see here the sign of a rainbow, we're reminded what it should be a sign of. Our God shows mercy. He could flood the earth anytime he wanted to, but he made us a promise. He will show us mercy. I want to issue to you a challenge, because at the end of the day, We actually deserve the flood. (laughs) We deserve it. By promising not to send another one, God is not giving us what we deserve. That is mercy. So here's the challenge. When you see a rainbow from now on, remind yourself of this truth. I deserve death, but God has given me life. Because that's what it means. We deserve death, but God has given me life. Before we finish up this portion of text, I want to touch briefly on verse 15 here. God says, When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. When, it says, when God says, I will remember, this is called... Good luck spelling this right on the first try. I definitely did not. Anthropomorphism. This is a fancy word for giving something a human characteristic that is not a human. Okay? So if we say, um, you know, like that thorn grabbed a hold of me. Okay? Well, a thorn can't grab a hold of anybody, but it clings to you. You're walking through the woods. It clings to you. Okay? So it's not a human, but we say that it grabbed That's an anthropomorphism. Well, the Bible frequently uses this to describe God. Okay? It talks about God remembering or forgetting specifically. And there's other examples of this, but we see this in our text this morning. God does not forget, and God does not remember in the way that we do. We are using a human phrase to describe something about God, that helps us to understand something about him, but we need to recognize that just because we use this word of God doesn't mean that he interacts with it the same way we do. I remember because I forget, and I forget because I'm imperfect. Hey, Garrett, did you take out the trash? Oops. (gasps) I forgot. Hey, don't forget to do this. Okay, you go throughout the day. You remember, I got to go get bread. I remembered that knowledge for a little while was not in my mind it was somewhere back in the recesses and then something pulled it forward so it is similar with God but not in the way that it is with us God doesn't forget or remember because he has perfect knowledge of all things When the Bible says that God remembers or forgets, it has nothing to do with his knowledge. His knowledge is perfect. Rather, it has to do with God's acknowledging or acting upon something. When God remembers his covenant, he is acting according to the covenant that he has made. When God forgets our sin... And our record of sin and it's wiped clean, that doesn't mean God suddenly has no knowledge of those things. When he says, I, I will forget your sin, it's not like you sin again, and he goes, Well, that's the first sin you've ever done. No, he has not forgotten that in the way that we forget things. It means that God is deciding not to act against our sin in a way that he would have before we were forgiven. So if God remembers his covenant, what it's saying is, I'm deciding to act upon something that I've already decided I will do. Now this applies to a lot of other things in scripture. Anthropomorphism. You don't have to remember the word, but just remember, when the Bible describes God in a human way, it's trying to communicate something, and we need to be careful that we don't make God human unless God Let this be a comfort to you this morning as we get ready to finish up our passage. Our God does not forget. He doesn't have to remember. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you've been going through for a year or two years or five years. He is still there for you. Let's finish our passage this morning. Verse 18. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers.' He also said, "'Blessed be the Lord.' the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So now we learn a little bit about Noah's three sons. Verse 24 says that Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done. So we know that Ham was the youngest. We aren't certain of the birth order of the other two. Sometimes people suggest, well, it depends on the order they're listed. But we see their names listed in different orders in Scripture. So it's hard to say for sure there's disagreement on exactly those things. Either way, the focus of our passage is on Noah's act and how his sons respond to it. Noah, this righteous figure, who is the fresh start for mankind, reminds us that sin is still present. He grows a vineyard, he makes us wine, he goes out and gets drunk, and he passes out naked in his tent. There are a lot of questions here. Where was Noah's wife when this was going on? Why was he naked? Why was he drinking so much? We don't get any of that. What are we told? What we're told is that Ham sees Noah's nakedness. Noah is a man made in the image of God. And what does Ham do? He goes and tells his brothers, Guys, look, dad's passed out naked in the tent. Now, the other two brothers, they don't do what Ham did. What Ham did was a shameful thing. Shem and Japheth do the right thing. They try to protect their father's dignity and cover him up. They get a blanket, they get this garment, and they walk backwards between the two of them, and they lay it over their father so as not to embarrass their father by looking upon his nakedness. Here's our fourth point this morning. People deserve dignity. Because we are made in God's image. People deserve dignity because we are made in God's image. The passage makes it clear that Ham did wrong. And Noah, after he wakes up and finds out what happens, he curses him for it. It's very obvious this is wrong. Now, this isn't a magical curse. It's not like Noah said, I'm cursing you, and now this is uh, this, that's not how that works. This is a statement of condemnation upon him. Similar to when Jesus gives the Beatitudes, and he says, blessed is this person, and blessed is this person, and blessed is this person. It is very similar to that, but the opposite. Now this curse is prophetic, which is why Moses includes it in the passage. You notice several times in this passage, we see it first here in verse 18, then in verse 22, when it describes Ham, he wants us to know Ham is the father of Canaan. This is for a reason. If you know your Bible well, you'll recognize that name. It's the name of the promised land where God would take Israel one day. You're going to go into the land of Canaan, and that is going to be your dwelling. You're going to overthrow all of the people there because they're living in sin and rebellion against God. So Moses wants us to know that somehow that situation then ties all the way back here, and we see it in him now. He is this type of person, and his families will be this type of person, and that sin will spread until it occupies a nation. It reminds us, sin spreads in us like yeast does through dough. And if you do not eliminate that from your life, it will grow and grow and grow. We cannot simply sweep things under the rug and hope that it doesn't get worse. The problem always gets worse. You just don't see it until it starts to show and there's severe damage that's done. Before we wrap up, I want to point something out. Shem and Japheth show honor and dignity to their father by covering him and not looking at his nakedness. And they do this even though Noah has made a mistake. People do not earn dignity. They deserve it. And they don't deserve it based on what they do or don't do. That's called earning. (laughs) Okay? They deserve it despite what they do or don't do. Why? Because they are made in the image of God just like you are. Just like I am. Christians of all people should model this for the rest of the world. When we see our politicians and our leaders throwing these firebombs at one another, trying to one-up the other person for their own image and success in the political world, we should fight against that. But I'll tell you, this type of reacting has crept into the church as well. We ought to spread the image of God in how we stand for life and give dignity to all people. I've seen many Christians stand up for life, particularly in the abortion debate, in a way that is undignified. Insulting people that we know that they're wrong, but just embarrassing and humiliating people because we know we're right and we can do that. I've seen many Christians stand up for less important things that they are confident they're right about in ways that are undignified because you think, I'm right, I can talk this way. But we cannot. Some think that just because someone's correct about something, they can talk however they want to others who think they are wrong. Let me remind you, Jesus was silent before his accusers. In fact, I see Jesus all over this passage of Genesis. Who is the embodiment of God's image? Jesus. Who is the vessel that protects us from the flood of God's wrath? Jesus. Who is the life that's taken so that our life can be preserved? Jesus. Why does Jesus do these things? To show mercy. What does Jesus promise to those who are not shown mercy? Judgment who covers our nakedness and shows us dignity even though we are sinners Jesus Jesus does all of these things Romans 5:8 while we were still sinners Christ died for us we didn't deserve to have our nakedness covered we don't des- we deserve to be exposed look what they've done But Jesus covers us with his blood. That's what we sing about. He has covered our sin and our shame. Jesus is proof that God desires to show mercy first and then judgment second. We deserve the flood, but we don't get the flood. We get Jesus. Amen? Praise God. Jesus is our example of how to treat other people made in the image of God with dignity, care, concern, looking out for the weak, serving the outcast. Because everyone is made in God's image, not just the people we like. If you have not confessed your sin to Jesus this morning, if you find that you have never done that, you've never asked to be forgiven for your sin. You've never asked Jesus to save you from your sin. I want to extend an invitation for you to do that today. If you just turn to the Lord, confess your sin, and ask him for mercy, he is faithful, and he desires to show you mercy. It doesn't matter what type of person you are, because you are made in God's image, and your life is valuable. Mercy is on the table, but know that when the offer is gone, it will be replaced with judgment. Church, for the rest of us, may we recognize and treat all life as valuable in the way that we talk with others or about others, in the way that we protect others or defend others or pursue justice for others. And may we not forget that the most complete way of doing this is by sharing with others the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we really believe all life is valuable, what reason is good enough for not sharing how someone's life can only be saved through Jesus? I may have shared this before. If I have, be patient with me. We were watching Fear Factor, I think it was last night, actually there's like these old reruns, it's harder to find good new shows, so we just go back to the old ones, and even some of those are hard sometimes to avoid things. But it was a celebrity edition, and on the celebrity edition, they had Penn and Teller. So how many of you know who Penn and Teller are? Okay, good. So they're these kind of comedy magicians, and they're known for exposing how tricks are done, which is like a big no-no in the magic world, that that you don't do that, big no-no. They've been kicked out of several things because of that, but they do it in a way that still baffles your mind. And you still will watch and even watch how they did it. And you come away thinking, I still don't know how you did that, even though you showed me everything. It's amazing. Really, really talented. Very funny guys. Well, Penn, the larger gentleman, he's the vocal one. Teller is the quiet one. He's, he's a little bit shorter, doesn't talk. Penn is a very vocal atheist. He does not like God. He does not believe in God. He has written books. Okay, he's written a book that I know of for sure. I believe others, but he's written one for sure about how the Bible is just this crazy fairy tale that is just hard to believe that anyone would think this is true. And in this book, it is filled with blasphemous, terrible things about God, making fun of God. Penn made a video several years ago, and there was a Gideon that attended one of, his, one of his shows, and after the show, people are coming by and are very congratulatory, and Penn makes this video, it's like a video log, it's like 5-10 minutes, if you uh, want later, I can send you the link for it, you can watch it for yourself, and he's describing an account that happened to him after the show. He says something to the effect of, you know, people are coming by, they're congratulatory, it's great. And this man walks up. He's a very sharp-looking man who's dressed well. He's a businessman, obviously. And he walks up, and he says, hey, I just want you to know, I just thought that show was terrific. Like, you guys are so funny and talented. was just so good. And look, I, I want you to have something. And he pulled out a little Gideon Bible. And he gave it to him. He said, I want you to have this. And he gave a little gospel presentation. And he wrote his name and number inside the Gideon Bible. And he said, if you ever want to talk about this, I want to talk about this with you. I just wanted you to have this. Please take it, read over it. And I just want you to know, again, I love the show. I think you guys are terrific. Please, please read that. It is vitally important. And so Penn is making this video log, and he says, you know what? That guy was really nice. Like, that was just a nice man. I don't know if he knows that I'm an atheist. I mean, I'm assuming maybe he does, but I don't know if he knows that or not. And he still, and he uses the word proselytized instead of evangelized, he still proselytized to me. He was a really good man. I don't know if I believe what he has to say, but he was just a good man. And he made this statement. He says, I always have respect for a Christian that will proselytize. How much do you have to hate someone to know that they are going to hell and to not say anything to them about it? If we value life like we should, we will share this news. If not, we have some serious questions to ask ourselves. How much do I really value that person? Let's pray. Lord God, you are a God of creation. You are a God of judgment and holiness and justice. You are a God of mercy and grace and love and life. This is such a complicated, complex arrangement of attributes God but you were all of these things perfectly all the time at the same time and you have given us in your word how we are to seek to be all of these things and we're imperfect we are distorted and warped because of our sin but you God out of your perfect mercy have offered us mercy instead of judgment thank you thank you for showing us mercy Lord for those in here that don't know you this morning and you know exactly who they are I pray that you would continue to burden their heart to finally turn to you to receive mercy and to be saved from their sin and rebellion against you I pray that you would remove any obstacle that is hindering them from coming forward in faith and repentance to trust you to save them to turn from their sin. God, for the rest of us, would you open our hearts and expand the borders of our hearts that we might be filled with more love for others, not just the ones that we like, but the ones that are unlike us, that are different than us, that irritate us, that act differently than us, that think differently than us. Teach us to be a people who value and show dignity and justice and decency to all life because all are made in your image. Thank you for sending your Son to die for us. Us who are made in your image, you have redeemed us through the giving up of your Son. Thank you. Teach us to do the same to others. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.